The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Good morning. It's Monday the 11th of December here in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up today, the CEO of ARM tells us the government needs to make it easier to bring talent into the country. Central bankers in the US, UK and EU are getting ready for decisions that will set the tone for markets in the months ahead. Plus, move over Cayman Islands, there's a new haven for billionaires. We look at why the likes of CZ, Adani and Dalio are flocking to Abu Dhabi. Let's start with a roundup of our top stories. Britain's most successful tech firm says that the country needs to make it easy to attract talent from overseas. Arms CEO Renee Haas has told Bloomberg that whoever wins the next general election, further restrictions on skilled migration will hurt growth. Please make it very easy for us to attract world-class talent and uh, attract engineers to come work for ARM because that is the single largest limiter that we will have for growth is, uh, is access to talent. And if that gets any more difficult uh, with uh, a change in government that you described uh, mm. with, the, with the next election, that would be a headwind I would, want to, uh, would not want to have to, to engage on. So I would say my first message would be uh, please make it easy for us to bring people in Uh, and higher, and if you can make it even easier, even better. Rene Haas also says that it's not realistic that the UK uh, can try and replicate the success of Silicon Valley, but that there are ways the country can ramp up innovation. The comments on talent come just days after the government announced measures to reduce the level of skilled migration into the country with an increase in the minimum salary required for skilled worker visas. Rishi Sunak is under growing political pressure from his own party to reduce net migration after it hit a record high of 745 in 2022. The Prime Minister, meanwhile, faces questions about his handling of the COVID pandemic later. Rishi Sunak's flagship Eat Out to Help Out programme in August of 2020 saw him dubbed Dr. Death by a government official worried about the risks from COVID. This weekend, levelling up Secretary Michael Gove defended the scheme. It was not the case that there was a public critique of it. It was an effective way of ensuring that the hospitality industry was supported through a very difficult period. And it was entirely within the the broad outlines of rules about social mixing that prevailed at the time. Despite Gove's account, the then Chief Scientific Advisor Sir Patrick Vallance told the inquiry that Rishi Sunak would have known health experts were worried about his policy when he was Chancellor. It marks the start of a potentially dangerous week for Rishi Sunak, who also faces a crunch vote on his bill to remove asylum seekers to Rwanda. 
Bloomberg Economics says that global growth will slow to 2.7% next year, down from 3.1% this year. Leaving aside the global financial crisis in 2009 and the COVID pandemic in 2020, that would be the slowest rate of expansion since the dot-com bubble of 2001. The team at Bloomberg Economics is also shunning the idea of a soft landing in the US. They are forecasting a shallow recession to start soon and stretching into early 2024. This week could set the tone for the stock market and the economy as we head into 2024, thanks to Tuesday's US inflation print and Wednesday's Fed decision. Speculation that the Federal Reserve will start cutting rates early next year has so far fueled a sharp drop in Treasury yields and a surge in stocks. But former US Treasury Secretary Larry Summers says rate setters need to be cautious. The moment they turn or announce they're going to turn is going to be a seismic moment. And for that reason, they probably need to be very deliberative and careful about getting to that point and waiting until they see some overwhelming evidence of inflation being locked in low or see some real evidence of the economy turning over. Summer's warning comes as the S&P 500 index has added roughly $4 trillion in market value since late October. Participants in Bloomberg's latest Markets Live Pulse survey expect the index to hit a record high by the end of next year. Now, Ukraine's Vladimir Zelensky is headed to Washington to try and break the deadlock uh, over aid in Congress. Further U.S. military support has stalled as Republicans insist that changes to the U.S.-Mexico border policy be tied to help for Ukraine. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says that it's a critical moment for the country. Over the past year, it's taken back more than 50% of its territory. It's engaged in a ferocious battle right now along the eastern and southern fronts. Uh, We are running out of uh, resources already in the bank to continue to assist them. In October, Blinken's administration proposed an almost $106 billion emergency spending package, which included $61 billion for Ukraine. The White House budget director warned earlier this month that without a deal, the US would run out of resources to assist Ukraine by the end of the year. Vladimir Putin and Benjamin Netanyahu spoke at length on Sunday amidst growing tensions surrounding the latest Israel-Hamas war. According to a statement from the Israeli Prime Minister's office, Netanyahu criticised Russia's cooperation with Iran and taking sides against Israel at the United Nations. The readout from Russia didn't mention Netanyahu's criticism and focused on the, quote, catastrophic humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip. University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill and the board chair Scott Bock have resigned this weekend. Comes days after congressional testimony in which McGill declined to say that calling for the genocide of Jews always violates the university's code of conduct. Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey and Governor Josh Shapiro joined local leaders in Philadelphia for a rally against anti-Semitism. Those of us who have the authority in in this case, one legislative body, the United States Congress, or two, two houses of one Congress, is to get them the funds they need so they can fully investigate and prosecute these cases where there is a hostile environment on the campus. Senator Casey said that reports of anti-Semitic incidents have increased almost fourfold since the start of the war between Israel and Hamas. 
With Liz McGill's resignation, the focus has turned to the presidents of Harvard and MIT, who were also criticised for their responses before that congressional committee last week. In a moment, we'll tell you more about the emergence of Abu Dhabi as the newest haven for billionaires. But another story that caught our eye this morning is a piece by Matthew Brooker, the Bloomberg Opinion columnist. The headline in itself is pretty provocative. Is the UK ready to be honest about its decline? Oh, decline. That is a touchstone word, isn't it? But it's also this idea of being upfront about the challenges the UK faces. Now, Matthew has delved into the recent Resolution Foundation report uh, showing the problems or the challenges of productivity and growing the British economy and crucially how much it's fallen behind some of its comparable peers mm. like France and Germany. Now, it's a story that we talked about here as well, but it also is part of this idea of how you move on from that and and the idea of having to accept the challenges to be able to develop a to solution. Move forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. We spoke to the Resolution Foundation's um, chief researcher, you know, one of the people that wrote this 291-page document, and Matthew Brook has sort of done a deeper dive into it, which is fascinating. I think it was a slap in the face, I think, in the UK, to realise that middle-income households are 20% poorer than in Germany. I think that's not commonly understood in the UK. Uh, yes, it's a low-productivity issue, but Brooker talks about how inertia is also a challenge so too is magical thinking um, but perhaps some sort of signs of optimism because both the big political parties in the UK were at the launch of the Resolution Foundation's big document so maybe things are changing um, it's a really fascinating piece not all gloomy Booker talking about the positive sides of the UK economy and if we can focus on those you know perhaps things will improve yeah, well, let's turn to a related story now. As we mentioned there a moment ago, the CEO of the UK-based tech firm Arm has been speaking to Bloomberg's Tom McKenzie. The Cambridge-based firm designs chips found in some of the world's, mo- most of the world's smartphones, in fact, and plays a key role in the global semiconductor supply chain. It was a wide-ranging interview covering everything from their listing on the New York Stock Exchange in September to the UK's economic ambition and the risks of AI. Rene Haas oversaw the company's $54.5 billion IPO earlier this year and began by discussing how that's changed the way the firm operates. We've been public now uh, for a few months. Yeah. Uh, so I would say I feel like the eyes are upon me a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, than they were prior. But on the other hand, I, I try to think about it in terms of um, the future of ARM is really not measured in what we are today. It's what we're going to be in a few years. I spend most of my time thinking about where ARM is going to be three years from now, five years from now. So on one level, yes, it's changed because the eyes are on us. We're a public company. We have to meet our expectations. We have to do exactly what we say we're going to do. But on the other hand, I'd like to think maybe not so much change because I'm thinking about five years away, just like I was before the IPO, same way I'm thinking about it today. I want to talk a little bit about ARM's place in the UK. Arm was conceived, of course, here in Cambridge in the UK. It's now obviously majority owned by a Japanese company, SoftBank, listed in the US. What role do you see the UK playing for Arm in the years ahead? The UK is our home. Uh, it's our headquarters. It's where we were born and we're always going to be here. So the UK is incredibly central to the future of Arm in so many ways. Uh, we've had Fantastic cooperation uh, in the two years or so that I've become the CEO from uh, from the UK government. Mm. Uh, we've had lots and lots of interaction with them. I have personally. 
They've looked for lots of different ways to, to help us grow, whether it's around fast track for talent and such. Because again, that's probably our, our biggest bottleneck for growth is just getting talent in. Uh, but we are very, very committed to, to the UK. Uh, and again, the UK is going to be so critical for our future. And, and the Prime Minister, the Chancellor, they want to create, they want to turn the UK into the next Silicon Valley. Is that realistic, Rene? Really? <laughs> There's only one Silicon Valley, right? It's a, it's a unique area in terms of its ecosystem, the universities, and how the whole, uh, how the whole section works. Does that mean that can't be uh, imitated or uh, replicated on some level in other parts of the world? No, not at all. And I think the government here has been doing a fantastic job uh, around that. And Cambridge itself is a very, very rich community of uh, small companies, incubators, the universities. There's a lot of... Uh, uh, former ARM employees who are involved in startups here in the community. So I think, I think the, uh, Cambridge in particular, and also other parts of the UK, including Bristol, are very rich for, uh, for innovation. What, what, what do you think the government, today's government, but previous governments as well, have done wrong in terms of failing to attract tech companies to actually list here in the UK? Or is it that New York just has this gravitational pull that just can't be beaten? I'm not a financial guy. I'm, a, I'm an engineer, yeah. uh, so I'll kind of give you just my, my layman's uh, thought around that. I think the capital markets and, and scale. I guess maybe speak about the arm. Mm. Uh, our own our own case. Very large capital market. Uh, the access to capital was very large in New York. Uh, I think that was one of the reasons that uh, that really drove that uh, in in our case. But I think broadly, back to what really matters for arm and myself is attracting world class engineers. And the UK has always been a fantastic place for R&D and innovation, and, and I think it'll continue to be that way. Okay. You've been meeting, you meet with regulators, you meet with lawmakers, of course, around the world. Have you been meeting with members of the Labour opposition party? And if so, what has your message been to them? I have not. Yeah. So, okay. so, so far, not yet. Okay. If they would, look, the polls have the Labour party in a 20 point lead. There's a very good chance that they could be in government in 12 months time or, or less. Yeah. Often governments set themselves 100 days in terms of to achieve big things in their first 100 days. What would you say to any incoming government, whether it's the Conservative government or a Labour Party government, that you would want to see happen in those first 100 days yeah, for your I'll, sector? Yeah, specifically for, for ARM, yeah. uh, as we talked about earlier, we're very committed to the UK. Uh, this is our home. We were born here. We intend to stay here. Uh, please make it very easy for us to attract world-class talent and uh, attract engineers to come work for ARM because that is the single largest limiter that we will have for growth is, uh, is access to talent. And if that gets any more difficult uh, with uh, a change in government that you described uh, mm. with, the, with the next election, that would be a headwind I would, want to, uh, would not want to have to, to engage on. So I would say my first message would be, uh, please make it easy for us to bring people in uh, and hire. And if you can make it even easier, even better. We've seen the debate around risks, risks around generative AI blow in, blow out into the open with, with what's happened with OpenAI and, and Sam Altman. Where do you land on this? I just wonder, is there an element of this story that keeps you up at night, that concerns you? What are you most worried about within the evolution of generative AI? Uh, that, the, that we lose control of the machines. I think to some extent, and the hows are still very much being debated, obviously, of having the fail-safe mechanisms in place that humans can override the systems. That is probably the single largest thing that I, I think and worry about, is that if the machines can be, or the algorithms, or whatever's being generated can be developed in such a way that there is no fail-safe mechanism, that it can be override, overridden by a human, uh, that's what worries me. 
Okay, that was Rene Haas, the CEO of ARM, speaking there exclusively to Bloomberg's Tom McKenzie about some of the uh, challenges facing his business, but also some of the areas in which he feels optimistic about the future for the chip designer. Yeah, absolutely. Great interview. The Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Now, let's turn our attention, though, to something totally different, a new haven for the world's billionaires. So from hedge fund billionaire Ray Dalio to the Russian steel magnate Vladimir Lissin and India's Adani family, they have all set up special purpose vehicles in Abu Dhabi. Bloomberg has been sifting through the hundreds of corporate filings to understand the moves that have taken place this year. Uh, Bloomberg's Ben Bartenstein covers the Middle East uh, in Dubai, and he joins us now for more. Ben, really interesting piece. Why are so many billionaires shifting to Abu Dhabi? Well, part of this goes back to the COVID days. The UAE was very successful uh, in the early days of COVID in you know keeping open for business and attracting some of the wealthy uh, from Europe and Asia and the, the U.S., um, then that extended to uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the UAE taking more of a geopolitically neutral stance that once again attracted uh, more high net worth individuals. Um, and more broadly speaking, ADGM, Abu Dhabi Global Market, which is the international financial center in the capital, uh, has really been sort of uh, leveraging the fact that the Abu Dhabi is home to so much capital from both sovereign wealth funds and private investment firms uh, to say for investors who've previously done business with them, if you want to continue to do business, you should really shift more of your assets and your companies here. So who are some of those high net worth individuals who've moved? Uh, so everyone from CZ, the richest man in crypto, the former Binance CEO, to the Adani family, so the second richest family in India, to Ray Dalio, as you mentioned, the hedge fund billionaire from the US, to Vladimir Lisin, who's the fourth wealthiest man in Russia, to Murtaza Lakhani, the prominent oil trader, uh, Sheikh Tatnoon, who is the UAE national security advisor. A number of his entities have registered SPVs. And uh, most recently, uh, Nasif Sawiris, the, the richest man in Egypt, told us last week that he's planning uh, to set up an Abu Dhabi global market as well. Wow, it's becoming quite a magnet then, isn't it? So which jurisdictions are losing out, do you think? Well, it's interesting. We looked at the data from both the BVI and the Caymans, just as two examples, because we were hearing anecdotally about a shift in wealth uh, from the Caribbean 
And it's interesting to see that their data points to a decade low for corporate registrations. Uh, we're also hearing about some shifting of assets from Singapore, from Mauritius, uh, and Switzerland to Abu Dhabi as well. What is it about Abu Dhabi Global Markets SPVs that make them particularly appealing? Uh, part of it is the comfort that comes with the legal structure. It's English common law, so that's more uh, you know, comfortable and, and uh, familiar to a lot of international investors. Uh, also, just the, the guarantees as far as ring-fencing assets. Certain folks who may have legal uh, challenges in other jurisdictions uh, are given certain guarantees as far as sort of safeguarding their assets within Abu Dhabi. And of course, it has the sort of uh, low taxation appeal that a lot of the Caribbean uh, places have had as well. And then more recently, we've seen sort of Abu Dhabi flexing its geopolitical neutrality, which is appealing for certain individuals who may feel that they're uh, judged based on their based on their nationality and maybe are less welcome in other jurisdictions. Mm, wow. So borrowing from, yes, a lot of other jurisdictions then. What assets, though, have you found that the SPVs actually hold? So a lot of these SPVs hold a, a mixture of both equities, but they can also hold uh, property assets as well. Uh, part of this goes back to sort of, um, you know, planning uh, for the future for individuals, you know, looking to pass on their assets after their, their death. Um, and the fact that the UAE legal structure uh, onshore uh, has certain, uh, you know, uh, Muslim legal codes that, uh, you know, codify a certain standard for how the assets are passed along. Uh, and ADGM has sort of, uh, you know, its own unique structure where you can, uh, you know, more clearly designate who in the family were to take over the assets. Uh, but also we've seen like an in instance of Dalio where, you know, family offices are registered under the SPV structure as well. Ben, talk to us about where we are in this trend. Are we approaching a peak? What's the outlook look like for these this movement to Abu Dhabi from here? That is the big question. I mean, this year was pretty much a landmark year for ADGM as far as SPV creation, but just more broadly in attracting kind of a who's who of global players from Dalio to, to Brevin Howard and, and many others. I guess the broader question as we saw in the case of the BVI and Caymans as two examples is, you know, they have traditionally been great at attracting a number of special purpose vehicles. Ultimately, that attracted greater scrutiny though. So I guess the question is, uh, you know, Abu Dhabi has been very successful in the past few years at attracting these high net worth individuals. At a certain point, just naturally that would attract a bit more, more scrutiny. So that is, I guess, is the question going into 2024 uh, is whether this trend will continue. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 11.30. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. 
He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.